Welcome to the podcast, the destination for insightful discussions and interviews on the appreciation, conservation, and husbandry of reptiles with a focus on turtles and tortoises. Now, let's join our team of turtle nerds. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. We are here for episode 97. I've got my sidekick, Madalena, with me. She's been instructed not to say anything. You cool with that? Perfect. Okay. It's going to be great. And uh, as always, Emily here and Steve behind the scenes. And we have our esteemed, wonderful guest who is probably one of the best social media follows in all of rep the reptile world and someone who is not just a social media presence, but someone with amazing accomplishments. And, and I can't even imagine the incredible stories that he can tell us. But uh, Captain Jeff Fobb, uh, and, and yeah, and, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of really cool, exciting things. So, so Jeff, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We, we were talking a little bit ahead of time. We had, we had some technical difficulties. Now be careful. We've, we've had technical difficulties in the past. These were different ones. Okay. So this is, it's not going to affect the, the viewing pleasure, knock on wood, but it may affect the, the time that we start. And it did, but that's okay because we're here. And, and Mark thinks he's late. He's not late. We're just starting, Mark. It's okay. So thanks, everyone, who's tuning in already. Uh, Jeff, Jeff was, he's, you're retired now, freshly retired, a couple years, right? Do I have that right? I retired, I retired in October of 2021. Perfect. See? Okay. So I'm not too far off there. And uh, you were the, the leader of the Miami-Dade Venom 1 team that's, right, that was, that was, uh, made famous by the show Swamp Wars. Is that is that all correct? Yes, I was an operations captain. Uh, you know, we we operated under either special operations and later on uh, the EMS division. Uh, so I was uh, the the ranking officer on the unit. So I just find this fascinating. Like I I hate starting off a show with tell me about how you got into you know animals. Tell me about how you got into what you did professionally. But I really that transition, and again, I don't want to pr pretend to be a, a expert on on your life, so I'll probably get things wrong. So please correct me and and let us know. But if if I'm not mistaken, uh, you, I assume you were into reptiles when you were younger, and then you were in the military, and then is that how you got into kind of the path that you did? I, I want to know about how that path worked because I think it's a really so interesting one. Like most kids, uh, when you're around four or five, that fascination with dinosaurs. And I mean, they're, they're just kind of incredible. And I can remember having a view master with uh, dinosaurs and prehistoric animals. And you can't have those, but you can find things that are similar. Crocodilians, turtles, uh, lizards and snakes and all those things. Uh, that honestly creep people out are just, you know, infinitely fascinating. I mean, why are we so afraid of them? Why do they bother us so much? That's an interesting one. Do you think, I was just talking to someone at work today who's an, a veterinary technician, who's an incredible tech, who's, who deals with the nastiest of the nasty in terms of animal behavior and excrement and other disgusting things that most people would never go near. And she's terrified of snakes. And like a cat brought a little garter snake home and she was freaking out. Like, how does that happen? Is it nature or nurture? Is that fear I, within most of us or is that something that's taught to us? I, I think it's something we learn. 
I think I honestly, the, the, the really profound hyper emotional reactions, I think are learned and then probably reinforced, you know, we, we teach ourselves terrible habits all the time. And then that's another sure. one of them. I think, I think one of the things that makes people less fearful of, of things is the more they find out, the less scary those things really are. Right. Information's a huge, a huge leveler, uh, and a huge gateway into like just how really interesting the whole world is. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think it's totally a nurture thing and that's something that's learned. It's a learned behavior not a, not something that's within us. Uh, so you're growing up, you're obsessed with, with these things and, uh, do you go right into the military and what is, what is that? <laughs> I went to college and uh, made the mistake of listening to a recruiter. Uh, and ended up in the service and ended up, uh, in, in, uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Uh, honestly, when I had free time chasing around Euromastics and all the critters you can find there, uh, in a, in a, in a less healthy environment than I should have been in. But, uh, but the good thing is I had a very good friend and mentor, uh, Art Myers there. And, uh, you know, he had the same fascination. He is one of the people who like really got me interested in turtles and tortoises as well as venomous snakes and things. Uh, he had a, a very nice collection of turtles, uh, just amazing stuff and, and just had a great environment for him uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. And from there, I, uh, uh, my, my wife's on the fire department. She's much smarter than I am. And uh, she took a, a path uh earlier than i did and retired about 11 years before i well yeah about 11 years before i did uh just a much much uh, smarter and on on uh <laughs> had a chosen path and i decided to do that after a little while that's great uh, emily it was did a you good have a choice question? i think yep sorry there's a little delay on my phone um i was just wondering what age did you get into venomous uh well you know honestly when i joined the marines i was around 21 so around 1920 is oh, okay. when I really got into the keeping and husbandry, not just finding them in the field, not just feel, you know, looking for them in the field, but actually, um, you know, keeping them, caring for them, identifying, you know, various species from around the world. That, that was probably like around the age of 19 or 20. Before that, I was just kind of looking at them. You know, I grew up near the Serpentarium, so I could really kind of get a uh, fix uh, of, of weird things that were off-putting to a lot of people by being by going there. Mm -hmm. uh, and seeing all that was, was kind of amazing. Oh, cool. That's really cool. And uh, so after, did you go, did you make the transition into your public service kind of firefighter career after, directly after the service? Uh, there was a little transition period. Uh, I went to, went back to school for a little while, but honestly, I, I worked, uh, I worked in for, uh, uh, oh my goodness, what, uh, Department of Public Works in Alachua County in uh, Gainesville, University of Florida. And I don't know if I'm especially suited to office work. I kind of <laughs> like being in the field. I kind of like being outside and having different things to do and applying, you know, skills to different problems uh, regularly and not the same problem over and over. Uh, so the fire department was a really good fit. How long were you there lucky. before things started to turn into what they became with 
kind of the Venom team and all of that sort of thing. I'm envisioning in my because this sort of thing, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, isn't covered in you know wasn't covered in the show and isn't covered so i'm just i'm interested in kind of what that transitions like over time because i think a lot of people look at somebody like you and like oh my gosh what a cool job what a cool life to live and they don't realize the the way that things kind of have to fall together over the years for something like that to happen it, for you it when does. it didn't even and exist it, when you got started you know the saying uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants well, we stand on the shoulders of giants you know yeah. everybody that went before us adds well, not everybody, but many people before us add something to what we are capable of doing and, and uh, how do we approach and solve different problems. So you want to know the neat thing? The money that started the, orig the origins of, of the Venom unit came from uh, the Reptile Breeders Expo and Wayne Hill. Uh, they had a few uh, injuries, serious injuries to keepers in Florida, and they decided to take seed money from that and start up a subscription service, an anti-venom bank in, in Florida. And it was a, a nonprofit. Uh, and then a fire department with Dennis Sargent actually uh, kept the medications and distributed them as needed in an emergency. You know, they kept all the proper paperwork and everything. And my dog's trying to get in the in the room. Sorry. And uh, so from there, we had a, a mamba bite, and this was like in ninety one, ninety two. And then up, and then uh, I'm not sure when it went to Winter Park. I used to have all this in my head, and it's just kind of fuzzy now. So I don't want to have the wrong dates. Uh, but then in nineteen ninety eight or so, we had a black mamba bite, oh. and the animal was coming into an importer in Miami, where there's a large number of importers in the Miami area. You know, Broward County, Dade County, um, and they had to get the anti venom from the anti-venom bank. Uh, and that was through Al Cruz. He was aware of it. He got the medication. And then they said, well, since these animals are coming here, since a lot of the animals are processed here before they're distributed throughout the U.S., why not bring part of that here so it will cover the people who are working at the airport, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Florida Fish and Wildlife, and any of the importers in the area. So we'll have the medication here and not have to wait for that long transport time. Um, and then eventually it, it, it left the, the other fire department and, and the totality of it moved to Miami-Dade County. And we've been maintaining it ever since. And we've had a few people uh, uh, set up anti-venom banks as, uh, uh, that are structured similarly uh, in, in Florida. We had, there's Joe Kiefer in the Nature Coast Anti-Venom Index, and then there's Venom 2, but I think they just keep uh, uh, medication for, for native animals. Okay. And that's in Lake County. Very interesting, really interesting. Well, uh, so that happened in 98. Now we were talking before we came on and you kind of mentioned that the Venom 1 team was more officially like, came together at that time. Can you talk about how that kind right. of Right. So in 1998, it was Al Cruz. He was, uh, I believe he was a lieutenant when it first started, later became a captain and then a chief, and he retired the same year I did. Uh, then uh, Ernie Jilson and Scott Mullen, uh, both lieutenants, got involved. Uh, and then in 2006, we got Lisa Wood, another lieutenant, and myself. And then it, we uh, we developed it into a 24-hour program because if you you know if you think about it, many of these injuries do not occur during regular business hours. 
So having just a, a staff that's there during business hours doesn't make sense. It's better to have somebody available late at, late at night uh, when a lot of these injuries occur. Um, and, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, a lot of these injuries occur. So we moved to 24 hours in the first 24-hour personnel on the unit were Lieutenant Wood, myself, and uh, Lieutenant Mullen. And uh, now it's staff other people because uh, Lieutenant Wood retired. Uh, I retired and then uh, Lieutenant Mullen went to the air truck, which is another specialty in the fire department. And it is uh, uh, Lieutenant Chris Picori, Lieutenant Jolie Vandervloot, which is a mouthful and it's got not enough vowels in it, but she's a great person, a lot of animal experience. And Rusty Shaw, Captain Rusty Shaw, and those are the three personnel that are on it now. And we, you know, people think how, you know, there's like a, we dealt with it at most like 100, 125 bites in a, in a bad year. Average is probably closer to 25. They're like, oh, well, what do you do the rest of the time? Well, anything animal related. We have large animal rescue training. We have, uh, you know, alligator training and licenses so we can deal with crocodilians. Uh, we deal with, have dealt with venomous snakes. Any kind of wildlife that you can think of, number one, we know the resources to call if we need extra assistance. Uh, we have medical training. So any, any animal-related rescue, they're, they're, they're sending to this unit so that we can go and like mitigate the call without re requiring that you know, multi-million dollar apparatus and, and crew and tying them up on something that is non-emergent in most cases. Super interesting. How do you uh, determine, uh, a question from Matthew here, how do you determine which members of the greater team end up being on the Venom team? Is it just people, the smaller fraction of people who would be interested in doing something or crazy enough to do something like that or, or have the interest? You always have that? to have, you always have to have what we call relief factor. So it's people that have the training. We have the Rattlesnake Conservancy coming down once a year or so to do a training in Miami that we put our personnel through to maintain those skills, their perishable skills. You don't get venomous snake calls uh, every day. You get them intermittently and, and you know, they're perishable. Uh, for a long time, I was doing training with uh, four, you know, uh, various agencies from around the US and military personnel on, you know, uh, hygiene, safety, safety equipment, equipment selection, identification and things. Um, but can that kept my skills sharp because I was constantly having my hands on something that could potentially harm me. And, you know, fire departments are inherently uh, safety conscious industry. Uh, so it really works. It really meshes well together. You know, we're very cognizant of tool use. Uh, you know, tool selection and things. So we, we could we could really keep our skills sharp by training other people, you know, it, it really, it really goes a long way to making us better at our job. And actually, if we could reduce injury and I, I think that would be great, then we wouldn't need, we wouldn't have to, we'd keep down on venom, wouldn't have to use it because those human injuries can be devastating for that person. And that's why we maintain it. It is, it, it, there's social costs involved with someone who's injured and potentially has not necessarily a life-threatening injury, but a career-ending in, uh, or life-changing injury. Loss of function of a hand, which we don't think about, can be devastating. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It makes total sense. 
what percentage of the team of the of the Venom team is are people like yourself who had that lifelong fa fascination? Because I know for somebody from Connecticut, from the cold north, where it seems like there's so few people like me, when I go to Florida, there just seems to be. Oh, my neighbor has a hundred turtles, and my neighbor has well used to have a hundred tegus, but not anymore. Yeah, we'll talk about Florida. That is a, Florida is a strange place. It really is. It's, uh, it's where, like where the, reason the finds no purchase. But uh, beyond that, um, everybody now doesn't necessarily have the same fascination, but they do have the same training, if that makes sense. And sometimes when you've had a fascination, but not the training, but not proper uh, mentorship, your skills are perhaps unsafe. Your, your practices are unsafe. You know what I mean? But if you, it's like when, you, when I was in the service. And you had a lot of people who grew up shooting. Uh, they were not necessarily the best shots. The people who could take direction from the primary marksmanship instructor oftentimes ended up being better, better marksmen because they didn't have those bad habits ingrained in their practices. Makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So I see benefit both ways. But then again, I, I, I rationalize everything uh, many times over. So how do you how do you become a captain within that team? How do you become the face of the Swamp War show? How does that Oh, happen? I don't know you if just, I was the face of the Swamp War show. I was just I, that weird that uh, I remember. Is that just because guy Jared on there. told me? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh well, let me tell you, and so in 1998 is when I got on the fire department. Like I said, my wife's much smarter. She had like 20 years on the fire department before it because I'm just kind of thick and slow. I'm like, ah, yeah, I don't, why, why would I want to do that? Uh, so in 1998, I got on the fire department, out of the service in the fire department. Uh, and that's the year that Al Cruz uh, started the, the Venom program within the fire department. And then in 2006, I got promoted to, nope. 2004, I got promoted to lieutenant and got my paramedic certification. And those are two things required to be on uh, in the in the Venom unit. You, know, you have to be a paramedic. You have to have, uh, you know, you have to be an officer. Uh, and Chuck Seifert was already there. And he was from my class. Both of us got on the fire department at the same time in 1998. And he uh, let Al know about it. And then they brought me in to do training, uh, teach me how to, you know, anti-venom selection, storage, rules, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and then and then we picked up Lisa. They sent me to a large animal rescue class where I met Lisa Wood, who was also a lieutenant on the fire department, had just recently been promoted, paramedic. She was also a vet tech, worked at a zoo, has a ton of animal experience. Um, and I, I said, well, that's great. Would you like to come and get trained? Because you have to have this thing called relief factor. You cannot just have the people you need to fill three slots. You have to have, they go on vacation, they get sick. Uh, God forbid something happens to them and they can no longer work in the fire department or they, or, they, or they pass away or retire. So you have to have this replacement and relief factor. So you need more people than three to really make, fill the team out. Uh, we also have a thing called a CR day, which is compensatory relief day, which is huge benefit for me every day is uh, a Friday. So I have a weekend after I work and then I go back to work and it's another Friday. Some people might call it a Monday, but I prefer to think of it a Friday because a weekend follows. Uh, 
but every every three weeks, I never work Fridays, and and my most of my career with the venom unit. So there, that's a day when I'm not on duty that I'm normally scheduled. So you need to have personnel who can fill in in that spot as well. Uh, so you need to have more than three, and you need to maintain those skills. So fire department, one of the things we love to do is training. Uh, we're trying, you know, we tried for a long time to design a training regimen on how to handle dangerous wildlife, how to deal with uh, dangerous domestic stock. Horses and cows are dangerous. Uh, goats can be dangerous. Any animal can be dangerous in, in the right or wrong circumstances, depending on your perception. Uh, so Lisa came, so that's why they sent me to Large Animal Rescue. So I'm at the Large Animal Rescue, meet Lisa Wood. She comes on, Scott Mullen was there and they said, well, uh, this about the same time Jeb Bush said that uh, animals are family because of a hurricane and they didn't have animal friendly shelters. They said animals are family. So we said, well, why don't we extend our work to deal with animals other than just venomous snakes, which are fairly rare. So that's how we got it moved over to 24 hours uh, is through that notion of animals as family having resources available to deal with problems. The Burmese pythons were showing up around then, 2006. Another problem, actually some of them had been found many years before in the, in the, in the 90s. Uh, but it was becoming a growing problem there. Uh, and then, and you know, it's a weird thing that we do. It's rather unusual. So that in, unusual things interest television, especially where somebody can be grievously injured. People want to watch that. and. Uh, boy, it's that sexy. sounds really negative, but it's true. I, I, it's I think true. it's true. Yeah, most, so what most we do dangerous. is dangerous. It's yeah. and, and you know, I, I try to be as real as possible, uh, with, from my particular vantage point of the world. And honestly, most of those things are not dangerous. We can mitigate risks, a lot of the risks. Come on, we drive cars at 60 miles an hour, eat a, a Big Mac and you know, watch a movie on our telephone while going 70 miles an hour down the road in traffic with other like big metal boxes and think nothing of it. That is a huge risk. But we yeah. have anti-wreck brakes and cruise control and all these things that we think mitigate our risks. So we start pushing that envelope a little farther. Uh, my whole goal is to minimize the risks as much as possible. We can't ever eliminate them and minimize them as much as possible. And a lot of that is your mindset uh, and, 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 and repetition, like doing things over and over and over again until you have a level of comfort. And so, so then, you know, that they, I, I guess I wasn't great on, well, maybe I was, I don't know. I don't know. Did you watch the show? Did Emily, did you watch the show? I didn't know, but I have been a fan. Oh, you of missed nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. I really liked that show, and it was at a time. Hey, we're gonna act like it was like forever ago, but it, it was at it a time was when, kinda. You, like, you had cable still, and it was a, yeah. You know, yeah, it was, it was weird. It was a weird time. Planet. Yeah, pythons it, were a big thing, and swamps. And it was a big you know, thing. You want to know something terrible when they first said, "Oh, the name Swamp Wars," and I'm like. Number one, we're on the marsh side. The swamp side is actually on the west coast. <laughs> and what it's are we fighting against? Is it a war? A war yeah. against what? A war against it kind of made no sense. But swamps war and against... wars were big things at the time, and gators and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, Jeff, how uh, how do you think the pythons got in the Everglades? Quite honestly, 
uh, it could have been anything, but it probably was a number of things, really. We always look for a silver bullet to explain how things got the way they are when it's usually more than one, uh, more than one event. Uh, so probably not the hurricane. There weren't a lot of people breeding or importing at that time. I think Tom Crutchfield did some work. Uh, they did some work on the DNA of the animals. They didn't have animals here at the time. These probably came in prior to. They found pythons back as, I think there was a receipt from like the 70s or 80s uh, of a python found in the Everglades. I actually shared it on Facebook one time. And it's a little note. It doesn't say Burmese, but it does say python. And it was found near... Uh, Shark Valley, which is the northern part of the glades. And that was like 70s, 80s. And then they were found from time to time. So it could have been an initial release by somebody. You know, people want to do these things called farming, where they release a an bunch of animals and hope they reproduce, survive and reproduce, and they can just go collect babies. That's a possibility. I mean, people think weird things and do weird things all the time. They wanted to put hippos in the Mississippi in the 30s. You know? What? Why? But... <laughs> You know, and then That's individual great. releases, these animals escape. They're powerful animals. And we know herb keepers are super cheap. I've got a $10,000 animal and I'm going to spend $50 in, in, in caging materials and put this on it with a couple of blocks that he can easily push off and the animal escapes. Yeah. Uh, so escapes are probably a contributor to that population as well. So I don't look at it as one one simple event that explains how they got there. There's probably multiple events, escapes. Uh, and actually, I, I was reading a book uh, called Giant or Boss Snakes, pardon me. And, it, you know, it's, it's about uh, some of them mythological, some of them real. But there was a report of a snake escape from a circus train, a circus that was on a train in uh, like Ocean Reef area, like in the 1800s. So this isn't. You know, it's not something new. Uh, yeah. the, the, and, and there is also a, a delay between the population being there and then being noticed by people. Mm. It's not a problem until it's noticed by people. Right. When they start coming into Miami. Right. And there, there's a lag time between that population yeah. getting there and then the population growing so large that it moves out into human occupation, uh, areas that are occupied by people, rather. Right. Right. That's really interesting. Am I making any sense? I, I, I oh, you're making so much sense. Absolutely. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people are looking for one answer blame for all of the Burmese pythons. And um, that's a really good point. I never considered it. It's just a combination of things um, because there's some people who are steadfast that the hobby is to blame people releasing their pets, but then some people are really dead set that it was just Hurricane, what was it, Hurricane Andrew? Um, Hurricane Andrew. That's a that's a good point. It it could just be a combination of things. I didn't realize that they were documented in the wild that early. I I had no idea. But that's one animal. But I mean, that one animal was that uh, a signal animal? Was that the first part of the population, yeah. or was it just one stray animal? And all they have to do is find each other and have some little parthenog or parthenogenesis, and then you have maybe an ongoing population. So. Does parthenogenesis happen with Burmese pythons? I didn't know yes, that. Yes, it does, sadly. Oh, wow. That's wild. That's, Which is that's another crazy problem. to me. Because that doesn't happen in turtles. So for me, no. that's like the craziest thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they've documented it. And then there's sperm storage and all kinds of stuff that goes on with, with animals, with this kind mm -hmm. of animals that, that really creates a problem. But, you know, and the question is, what can you do about it? 
because quite honestly, global warming is going to destroy the Everglades before the Burmese pythons have a chance. Mm-hmm. And developers, wow. uh, yeah, they, they just wow. bought fifteen hundred acres for five hundred or fifteen hundred houses or more in uh, an area that is called Gopher, uh, Tortoise or Gopher Ridge or something, which is mm-hmm. populated with gopher tortoises. You know, it's we're our own worst enemy. And and, yeah. and re- what is the root of the problem? It's not Burmese pythons. It's humans and human behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, and that kind of brings me into something else I wanted to ask you about. You know, someone who's been, you know, in Florida for a while and... Is, oh, my whole life. I'm a right, native Floridian, this, which is a weird thing. Right. This and, and it is a weird thing. From somewhere that, else, that works yeah. on multiple levels. Yeah. And and has been, you know, like you said, obsessed with reptiles since age five or so. And and then also involved in, I, I get, it's not it's not law enforcement, but you kind of work alongside them as a firefighter and, and being a part of that team, right? So it's, it, it seems that there's been a real shift in Florida now where everything, and obviously this is like the most, it's the most obvious thing ever, but there's been this shift where now, you know, there's, there's a lot of development still, a lot of people still moving to Florida every single day. They need houses, the, you know, uh, development is money. And now they're kind of blaming the exotic animals like the iguanas and the Burmese pythons for all of the ecological problems when Florida continues to change from the Florida, you know, that you used to know that's long gone. And like, I guess I could probably guess what your, what your thoughts are, but could you speak to that a little bit? Well, the Everglades is, we think of the Everglades, uh, the, the national park, uh, big Cypress, the surrounding um, uh, FWC wildlife management areas or wildlife ecological areas is like, uh, tiny uh, compared to the original Everglades, which was an outflow of uh, Lake Okeechobee, which we dammed. When when European, you know, descendants first got to South Florida, the Miami River used to have rapids and they're like, oh, well, that's got to go. When they got to the bottom of Lake Okeechobee, there was a, a like about thousands of acres of pond apple forest. And, it, and the lake just kind of overflowed and flowed down the, the rest of the state, which is a, like a very shallow slope. And we put dikes and things all around it and completely changed the landscape, altered the water flow, altered that habitat. There used to be so much water there that it recharged the Biscayne and Florida aquifers. And there were springs that came up in Biscayne Bay where ships did not have to land. They could get fresh water in the bay. There were millions of gallons coming up in, in the bay. And that went away. We, we changed it. It's no longer what it was. So it's a death of a thousand cuts and each additional person drawing water out of the aquifer. Like I live in North Florida now and our springs are our lifeblood. Water is, uh, everything needs water. Every animal needs water. And, you know, they pump water out of the aquifer and don't think about it. But, you know, like Nestle does, uh, or, or whoever owns that now, Seven Sprint Sisters or whoever is the, own, is the company that owns, I think it's Nestle, the parent company. But mm-hmm. that changes the outflows of those springs and makes them less healthy, and that feeds the rivers. Look in Florida in, in um, oh my goodness, I can't even remember what river it is now. It might be the Apalachicola, where Georgia wants to use the water, and it doesn't ever make its way to Florida. 
and they, you know, that water is used. It recharges the aquifers and it, it, it does a lot of things, but you put a million people there and they're going to take out that same amount of water. We, we don't think about all these things, how complex this whole interaction in the world we live in is. We put fountains in Las Vegas, which is the, the uh, pinnacle of lunacy. I, I noticed that when I was out in in uh, California around LA, there's they never get rain, and there's these these resorts and things, and it's like prancing fluid water with feature on it. It's amazing, yeah. That is so irresponsible. <laughs> we are we are crazy naked talking apes. You know, we we make no sense whatsoever for an animal that can send things to the moon and send things to mars and get signals back we can't plan six nine ten months in advance i mean oh good grief we're just nuts oh we need to populate because we, mars because we're at, our, this. at our core we all have something different that we are fighting for and it's so difficult when you're on like the animal side or the keeper side to understand what the person you know it's it's democrats and republicans it's everyone's on one side of the aisle and not willing to listen to the other person's perspective it does seem that way a lot of times, but if you can speak to something that they care about, like, I don't think we should care about venomous snakes because we can derive a product from them. Oh, well, look, we get this medication from this snake. Well, who cares? We shouldn't care about things because they give us something. Yeah. That is perverse. Totally. In, in my, my estimation. That's but most people thing. see most people see humans as being superior and more important, which is part of the problem. When yeah. those animals, like to me, that animal, that that venomous steak is a lot more rare because people chop lop their heads off with a shovel at on site. That much more important than I am. Like when Harambe died, people ask me that. Like, oh, that, that gorilla died. I'm like, and I'm like, oh man, that's so sad. Like, I, I wish. Like I would have, I would have switched spots with Harambe just because of how important he is. And the people I was working with, social workers at the time, were like, "Are you kidding me? Like, what about your kids?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm more important to my kids than that gorilla." But in terms of the world, like that snake, that gorilla, that whatever, is so important. And we we value, we could value a man-made cat that just means so much to us, or dog. But then you know the, the you wild snake that's going dollars. Yeah, right? 900 that's cheap. Yeah. So I, I have animals now that I will never, probably never derive any benefit from having. Uh, and I'm planning on doing a, a, um, a restoration on the property we live on now to what was the original habitat. I don't know if you know that longleaf pines were like 30 to 60 million acres uh, in the southeast. And that habitat over time was cut down for lumber. Uh, used for naval stores, uh, and you know it, it was fire maintained habitat. So we've got a bunch of gopher tortoise burrows on our property. So we're going to restore it, uh, bring in some native, you know, let native grasses grow up, bring in fire regime because it's like one uh, once a year, once every two year fire regime, and kind of like bring it back to what it was prior to me even being born. I mean, that's from like the 1800s or so, and it's been changed to farmland, but. Once it goes to houses, you, it, its restoration is nearly impossible. It's just so much energy to get that, to, to do that restoration. Mm -hmm. So cool. How often, you said you had several, like a couple dozen burrows, right? Like how often- Oh, there's like seeing... 20 burrows. 
Yeah, how often are you seeing gopher tortoises out there? Is every that, day. Like, is there certain weather that makes it more every day? It's summer and they're out every day. Well, everything's blooming. Uh, we have a female that comes out on her apron all the time. She's got like a multi, uh, mul multiple entries into her burrow. She's right outside the window of the room I'm sitting in. And she comes out, our dogs ignore her. Uh, she's been there for as long as I can remember. And then her little boyfriends come over and visit every once in a while. So we get to see some of that. Play Barry White on the stereo. Some of that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, little, we know exactly what you're talking coming, about. The <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coming over. Yeah. Hey. yeah. Hey, how you doing? And hey, so, the, yeah, the males have burrows all around. We found evidence of, you know, it was crow predation on uh, a baby gopher tortoise. But, uh, you know, but that's evidence that there's babies. And then two days ago, we found like a two-inch wide burrow. Uh, and, I'm, you know, it, it makes me kind of giddy. <laughs> My life is so sad. <laughs> do they burrow at that size i th i thought yeah small ones, I, I didn't I realize friend, the small ones did i asked a friend and i said this looks like a gopher tortoise burrow i said i can't see the end of it it is definitely not armadillo and he goes this he goes that's about the smallest we've ever seen he goes but they can be as 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 shallow as like 12 inches and he goes they may not use it for very long but we have one that is about um not quite twice that width that we can see evidence of the animal moving in. I have never seen the animal, but I see evidence of him moving in and out of that little burrow uh, probably at least once a week. Yeah, and to actually see it is to know what you're talking about too. They just kind of kicking the sand out and you can see them doing it. It's really cool. Yeah, and you can see their footprints and as they drag their plastron across the sand, because uh, I, I monitor most of the, the burrows. We have one here that's missing in one of his legs and we see him. I haven't seen him this year yet. Uh, but I mean, that's just to see what it was like before I was born. I think I mm -hmm. kind of want to bring it back to that, which might be kind of a pie in the sky, you know, small, such a small piece of property. Uh, but I think it'll make a difference. We're getting ready to put up a bat house to attract some bats. Uh, we leave trees up so that, you know, the animals that use those trees, we you know when they die, we leave those trees up. Um, uh, so they can find their beetles and things that they eat. Uh, we want to, you know, we want to do, bring it back to what it was like a hundred years ago or more before people really started to alter the environment significantly. I'm just thinking of the next person who buys the house and be like, why would, why would they let it go like this? <laughs> yeah. Well, it burns every year. And, and though, and honestly, if we plant long leaves, long leaves don't mature for like 70 years. So, I mean, I'm not going to be around to see that, but I mean, That'll be super cool for somebody, I hope. Even if they log some of them to build a house or whatever. You know, they're just, uh, you know, we can't do things just based on my lifetime. My lifetime is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Um, we have a couple questions. So uh, someone asked if we had uh, pain hurts really bad. That's terrific. Asked if we, <laughs> that's their name, asked if we uh, had talked about Egyptian tortoises yet, which we have not talked about Egyptian tortoises. Uh, they were just within the last week, uh, word came out that they'll be on the endangered species list. Um, that's a big one. Uh, I wasn't going to throw that at you, Jeff, as a, as a curveball. I wasn't sure if you were if you were yeah, I saw that. that. I, I saw that. So that's a that's a big one. I, I think the the ESA is interesting. We've talked about it on this show previously uh, for many times over the years, specifically with Egyptian tortoises as well. We've had Ralph Till on to talk about it. Uh, Steve kind of came at it from the other angle. Like you have to understand that when an animal is listed on the ESA, 
that means that there's more dollars to you know support real conservation and and that sort of thing which is which is a good side of it from a keeper from a keeper's perspective it is uh really horrible because it makes it a lot more difficult to uh continue with the progress that's been made in terms of preservation uh the realist inside me says like the same amount of them can still be produced it, the those hatchlings just may not go to the highest bidder in the future they may go to people who have have over the years you know proved that they uh are you know worthy of something like that so just keep in mind if if you are involved in the future with gifting of of endangered species list species that you are documenting really well and this is where i'll give a shameless plug for uh, the digital colonian log which is something that uh the turtle room offers for free for anyone up to 25 species steve will correct me if i'm wrong and that's a place where you can document uh animals coming and going their weights that sort of thing the the source that the, that they were acquired from all of that sort of thing in a third party space so that uh, I, I didn't mean to say species i meant to say specimens thank you steve uh 25 specimens <laughs> i keep a lot of species so that's like saying 25 species actually makes sense to some of us sigh yeah yeah uh, i have some right. of those tendencies yeah just a little yeah. bit just a little bit yeah so you can keep track of things there and i recommend doing that it's a third party place where you can keep track and then if someone ever comes knocking on your door hey when did this radiated tortoise come to you and and what were the details and all of that you can say it's been here it's been logged and I have no access to change any of this, and it's just there that came from this place and, and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, so from our perspective, most of the people who, who tune into this podcast are keepers. So I know for a lot of keepers, it's a real bummer. But um, the good news, just remember that the same amount of animals can be produced. Uh, it's just how those will be distributed afterwards will be different and more complicated. And it's and with, the, with these animals, it's important to prevent inbreeding as well. Uh, you know, the the yeah. more specimens that are available, and the the more diversity there is in in that those groups, the the healthier those animals are going to be in the long run. Yeah. Like uh, my wife has uh, Galapagos tortoises, which we just started uh, acquiring a few years ago, and Aldabras. And one of the things we found is most people don't take their tortoises to the vet uh, unless they're sick. Mm -hmm. yep. But we're right near UF, and these, it's very important, with especially with these animals, that we have histories of when they started developing illnesses or you know other things that with healthy animals. So we're going to start taking them every like not every year, but like take a few every two year, one year, and then the next year take another group and start doing wellness checks with the University of Florida uh, ZooVet uh, program to get some baselines on them and see maybe we, we can identify when some of these problems might occur with those animals. Because you have enough animals and some of them are going to get an illness one time or another. And, and maybe having healthy animals will help us keep more animals healthy in the future is, is our hope. Yeah. Might be pie in the sky, but I, I, I believe. I think it's great. I think it's terrific. I, and I know I work on the veterinary side, so I see it a lot. I've never worked in an exotics practice, but I work for a large veterinary, probably the largest veterinary corporation company in the world. And I work with a lot of hospitals. I kind of do like a, a little regional thing and get to travel and visit hospitals and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, exotics, it's just 
There's not, there's not a lot of money in it. A lot of doctors aren't willing to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes they get treated like crap. Like, you know, you get the doctor who calls the yellow bellied slider or red eared slider and the, the client is then absolutely, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, turned off too. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, I can't, I, turned off is fine. And, and then they, they just, you know, have to deal with all of this nonsense because yeah. it's scary. It's daunting for a veterinarian to have to, you know, yeah. to open themselves up to work with 10,000 species that could walk through the door. Yeah. Well, this is specifically a zoo practice. So we're hoping that with some information from the animals we have now and ones we might get in the future, we might be able to, you know, develop something, you know, help them develop something we wouldn't be doing. I wouldn't be doing, obviously, to, to like help people out in the future with maintaining healthy animals. Yeah. You know, that's that's it's important, especially with the rarer species of animals. And we had a, a little bit of conversation going on in the chat. So I just want to I just want to go back to that. And um, Richard suggesting that what's happening is um, I, I think that's who said it. I'm looking here um that it's ruining the hobby um yeah i see it there so i think i think and i was talking with matthew about this earlier actually and i, I just think it's interesting to 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 know you know like you could take Jeff as an example, right? We were talking about how you built something over the years. And I think that when you're into these animals and you're younger and you kind of want to do something, you see things that are happening, like what's happening in Florida. And I know that's Richard's home state and that's Jeff's home state and things are changing and it's really scary and, and all of that. But I'll tell you a lot of the coolest animals that I work with and that I've been able to work with were given to me by were given to me free and i don't mean to say that to you to say hey look how cool this is because i can tell you that in my early 20s and in my mid 20s all i wanted to do was for have to have somebody trust me to have somebody look at me and say oh that guy i'm gonna let him be involved or whatever and part of our conversation steve and i when the turtle room was was in its infancy when it wasn't even a thing yet were was about wow like we're college educated we we feel like we messed up by not going to school for biology or zoology or whatever because we want to make the world a better place for turtles and tortoises and we feel like we can't do it and i want to work with endangered species and i want to see endangered species and i feel like i can't do it and it was so stressful but we started out gosh st steve started with some inexpensive map turtles and an eastern painted turtle and i started you know I hatched uh, spotted turtles first and then had five years where I didn't hatch a single turtle and then hatched some striped mud turtles, which are still a favorite of mine. So I think it's tough. You see this and you say, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to work with X, Y, or Z. But again, the same amount of Egyptian tortoises should be hatched, maybe even more this year, maybe even more next year after that. Uh, it'll just change how they go out. And I think most of us, if we actually stopped and thought about it, would be for, if we're really for the animals, we would be for the demonetization of the trade side, right? If it just went to people who proved over time that they really deserved it and they were in it for the right reasons, and that's kind of how animals moved around, I think that that could be better, as long as we were good about note-taking and and not flipping things because I think that I, I think that you can get yourself in trouble if you have ESA animals and you you know you get one that's given to you and then you're selling it within your state four months later. I don't, that's not how that's supposed to work. 
So uh, Charlie says, when is this supposed to take place? So there's some weird verbiage on there that's basically like 30 days after when that notice came out. So there you go. Matthew says April 29th. So um, there you have it. So I, I also want to ask some questions because I see some things happening. Okay, I'm going to tell a story. Tiger King came out and then wow. all the people that were in it who thought they were going to be stars and, and, <laughs> and they were stars and they are stars. Uh, they were made to look a certain way. Now, Swamp Wars didn't do that. Swamp Wars was cool. It, it just, you know, the sexiness and the glorifying of dangerous animals aside, because that's the angle that you have to take that's going to get people interested. You looked really cool. And <laughs> like I watched it, I'm like, man, this guy's It was awesome. editing. It was all in the editing. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> but uh, I don't believe you, actually, because I follow you on social media and I'm talking to you here and you're awesome. Right. Emily, what'd you say? Oh, no, I was like, give yourself some credit. Yeah, he deserves all the credit. Yeah, sure. Humility is important. Recognizing but your limitations is important. We, we've got some new shows coming out down the pipeline here. So we have. I, I can't wait. Right. So that's what I wanted to know, but I'm scared. You know, you talk about uh, ruining yeah. the hobby. Right? I'm scared that it's gonna. You know, if you look at what Tiger King did for these big cat people, it was not good for Doc Antle. It was not good no. for Joe Exotic, and it wasn't even good for Carol Baskin, who she's selling her property in Florida. Really interesting. Yeah. I just yeah. saw that the other day. Yeah, people just come in and talk smack to her every day. Probably. Pro who knows? People just get so weird. The, yeah. the thing that we need to avoid, it's, it should be about the animals. And like in, in my part, the animals are what's interesting. Like if you, if you follow my Instagram, there's seldom a picture of me. I mean, who wants to see me? I'm aged Russell from up, like I said earlier. <laughs> Nobody wants to see me. The animal is what's interesting. It's, a, it's more of a David Attenborough approach to yeah. uh, being about the animals and not so much about the person and their interaction. You know, I mean, it's for some people, that's really what the hook that gets them involved. But once you get involved and interested in the animals, the animals are really interesting. The, the animals have animals have personalities. They have desires, likes and things. A lot of things that we have, they're similar. It's not even anthropomorphizing. There he goes, oh, you're anthropomorphizing an animal. I'm not saying that they're going to build spaceships. I'm saying that they respond emotionally to the things that we do to them and around them. Yeah. My whole thing is I don't want to bother them that much. I want to, because our interactions actually change those animals a little bit. We create nuisance animals by feeding alligators. We chop the heads yeah. off of snakes because we perceive them as dangerous, whether they are or not. You know, we're, we're, we change our, our environment through our actions. So I try to focus on the, and the, and the focus should be on the animal. The focus should not be on the person and their ego. Feeding our egos is one of the worst things we can do as keepers. I mean, I, I've never been bitten by a venomous snake, and that is has less to do with me and my skills than it has to do with the fact that the animals would rather avoid me. Yeah, that's uh, I love that too. I, nothing makes me happier than when an animal bites or scratches or pees on me or whatever, because like that's that's natural. That's the same thing that the wild one's going to do. So this animal is doing what it's supposed to do. They they want to keep away from us. They yeah. they're they're averse to us. We're predators. We be. Uh, my wife has horses uh, and we deal with horse people quite frequently and most people behave toward their animals as predators and they're like oh the horse always runs away it's like yeah you're looking at it and you're walking straight at it and the animal looks at you and goes Ugh. It's got, i don't want to be around him or her yeah 
And, and you know, we, we're predators. We we behave like it, and and the animals right. respond appropriately. I love that. We're predators. We act like it, and the animals respond appropriately. There's some really good lines in here. You've said a couple now that I need to be like jotting down. I don't have a pen. Uh, <laughs> but you say that. <laughs> I'll, I'll listen back later. You say, uh, you know, it needs to be about the animals. And what a foreign concept these days in the days of social media. And like, here I am in the Everglades selfie with the snake and I'm wearing like barely any clothes. And here's my turtle and it's in between my bosoms. And, and, you know, here's my, yeah, I'm I'm playing with the alligators, but my shirt's off and I got my deltoids. The animals become an accoutrement to that person's ego. Like I'm interesting because I have these strange and unusual things. Yeah. And it it really should be, look at this. This thing is cool as can be. Like when I, I got such a great feeling, uh, you can ask my wife or my kids because one of my turtle pins was outside of my daughter's bedroom. And if I I missed a nest and those babies came out and I found them, ah, just that I couldn't, I can't help it. Uh, that's what I do when I find babies. Uh, whether it's in the wild or, and if you hear that in the woods, it might be me coming across something that I haven't seen in a long time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, uh, like I found a baby hognose crawling through my property, which, you know, uh, gorgeous, just a neat little animal, smaller than my finger. I did pick it up, uh, uh, just so I could get a picture of it because I really wanted to get away. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's that, it's, it should be about the animals. What we do should be in the best interest of our animals always that should be the first consideration is this appropriate or inappropriate am i doing what's best for this animal with what i have yeah it makes total sense simple and it doesn't have to be expensive i'm not talking about uh, elaborate setups with enrichment and and what's what's the big thing these days the eco cages with like uh roly polies to eat the poop and you know uh, whatever (laughs) they call it bioactive Yep. Yeah, bioactive. Bioactive. Yeah. That's it. Bio- I'm not like sure. It. Those big giant turds are still going to be there in a little while. <laughs> it does that work might with just some be, species. That might just be well. unhygienic. It does work with some species, but some better yeah. than others. I've tried with like some bigger turtles, like flowerback box turtles. It doesn't work because their craps are huge and they trample everything. But the little leaf turtles that are so yeah. dainty and don't really so, come and they live in that. Around. And they yeah. probably like that. The leaf yes. litter, the moisture, all of that. Because we have Aldabras, and let me know the great thing is in the summertime, we do have tumble bugs, and they come and they take care of that uh, like nobody's business, like little machines. I'll go out there and they'll be gone wow. like in a day. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm just thankful for them. Garbage men are actually my heroes because I that stuff I don't want to deal with. I with... put it in a bag, I take it to the curb, it disappears. <laughs> uh, they come and they, they, they go, yeah, they go through <laughs> the poop and they, they roll it around, they lay their eggs in it. And then, you know, you have more. It's a, They're amazing. I take video of them because I'm just such a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You were talking we about the bugs. have seven dogs and they take care of those what, too. What, what are the, what they the bugs are, do? They're, uh, <laughs> they, they, they take apart the poop. They roll it into a ball. They roll it around and they lay their eggs in it. They do. They're like they, dung beetles. You know. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's dung beetles. It's a, it's I didn't a couple of species of dung America. beetles up here. Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought they were in like. Yeah, they, and these are really, some of them are really nice. pretty. They, they're kind of metallic looking green and yeah. with like a different hues on them. It's, they're super cool. Wow. That's awesome. I need some of those in my yard. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, we tried to walk for exercise, but I have a, a, a daughter that's a 
just infatuated with funguses and 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 uh, algaes and things that she finds all over trees and mosses. So we will go about ten feet and then stop and like like sit there for ten minutes and take a picture. So it's never going to work as an exercise routine. You know, we never get up any velocity. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Stopping constantly. Uh, pardon me. I feel like I'm that way with bugs. Every time I see a cool bug, I have to stop. And I, look. Like, this there's is caterpillars. I've got woolly bears crawling all over the place now, and they, I don't know if you've ever watched it. They are fast for, yeah. for a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I go outside and I get like, well, what would I come out here for? You know, <laughs> I end, I end up uh, off in uh, my own little world because mm-hmm. the world is infinitely fascinating, whereas I am uh, not so, not so much. I would disagree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, can I ask? So you've been into the coolest reptiles there are, and and you live in an area of the world that has some of the coolest reptiles and and, and biodiversity that there is. And, uh, and then there's turtles and you've, you've kept a lot of turtles and you still keep tortoises. And I, I just wonder what is, cause, because they're so different, obviously they have their similarities. That's why they're, you know, reptiles, but they're so different in terms of their behavior and, and all of that. Are, are the tortoises just your wife's or what is it for you about turtles and tortoises that have, that have kept your interest, even though you have all this other cool stuff that you've had in your life? There. They're great. I mean, what's not to like about them? I mean, they're super fascinating. And when you look at the history of them with the giant tortoises, like they found one that was like eight feet long the other day, the, the shell, it's like eight feet long. They found, you know, fairly intact, just amazing animals and how they've adapted to their environment, to scarcity, uh, to the seasons. It's just kind of super cool. I found, I saw the last year, one of the coolest things I've seen in a long time, which was an alligator snapping turtle on shore it wasn't really egg laying time but it was up sunning itself and i had to i just had to stop and kind of stare at it and take pictures for a while and wow, then you know not bother really it because they're hardly ever out of the water hardly yeah. ever out of the water wow and it, that's really cool if you spend enough time outside you see some things that'll just are, are amazing and if you don't know they're amazing you can find out how amazing they are by just showing it and sharing it with people mm-hmm. wow that's- one of those golden nuggets. Yeah, that was a good quote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah, <laughs> you've got a lot of good gems today. <laughs> I know, I'm stealing them all. Yeah. I'll give That's you fine. I probably didn't come up with them. I probably stole them from somebody else. Somebody <laughs> somewhere has said them. You borrowed them, yeah. You just borrowed yeah. them. That's okay. Yeah. Those little nuggets of wisdom. Yeah. So what's it like being on a show like that? Did that change your life? Did people recognize you? People like, recognized me for a while. Uh, I think somebody recognized me like every now and again, like every couple of years, somebody will say, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, or I, I, look, I might just look like somebody who's on the back of a milk jug. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, for, a, for a while after the show initially aired, people recognized me fairly frequently. And honestly, it didn't change my life much. I kind of ignored that they were there, which I think is better for television yeah. than, than talking to the screen, you know, talking to the, the camera and the microphone. I just that's did my liked. job and ignored it. That's what I liked about you. I mean, I watched it a lot and I really enjoyed watching you specifically. And it was that you could, you know, when somebody's full of it, you can tell right away, like, like the, the cop on the show cops, like 
you can tell oh, when, the worst. Yeah. You can just tell when it's somebody who's like down to earth and like, isn't, but most of the time they're just kind of the bravado is a little pumped up and they're, you know, they know they're on camera. I, and, I'm not brave. I'm familiar with these things. So it makes it look like I'm brave because other people wouldn't do it, but that's not bravery. Right. It's, it's relying on training. It's, and it's training and, yeah. and familiarity. People, oh, going into a burning building. I have great gear. I hardly ever feel that heat. When I do feel the heat, I know it's way too hot. That's not brave. Might be dumb. But, I mean, we've got great equipment. We've got all this gear, and we've got so many tools to use. We know we, we have a, a, a general feeling. And plus, most of us feel bulletproof. We have Peter Pan syndrome. We're never going to grow up. So, <laughs> yeah, we all feel like we're 20, you know, and we're not. <laughs> yeah. Because the firefighters have, the, have Peter Pan syndrome, for sure. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I still don't want to grow up. I don't want to be, know, know what I want to be when I grow up, still. <laughs> I love that Matthew is chiming in. Matthew is, is a, a retired firefighter as well, so he's really enjoying this. I talked to him earlier and didn't tell him that you were coming on, but here we are. That's pretty cool. Firefighter yeah, you know, it was a job that allowed me to see and do a lot of things and help a lot of people which fundamentally is something we should be doing as a group. I, yeah. I see one of the problems with keepers and herpers in general, gatekeeping. I have found that new people bring different insights and, and, and uh, women, females being involved has brought a lot of perspectives that we did not have before. Yes. And I think it's been good for the hobby. Uh, when I first started getting involved in like the, the 80s-ish, when I really you know, was an, an adult, and involved, it was kind of creepy, vaguely creepy. A lot of the the, the females who were involved were either um, kind of some of them were groupies. It was a little weird, and a lot of misogyny and just weirdness and general weirdness mm-hmm. made me uncomfortable. Yeah, that makes but sense. I, but I find those perspectives broaden your horizons when you listen to people. You know, they see things. People, everybody sees things that I don't see. Yeah, even on the fire truck. When I arrive on a fire, I am seeing certain things and I depend on the other team members looking at it and seeing something that I may not. Absolutely. And, and it helps you know? if they see things and think in a way that's different than you do. So exactly. surrounding yourself by all your buddies who are very similar is an issue. I, I married a lady who disagrees with me uh, yeah. consistently because I probably make bad decisions yeah. <laughs> uh, fairly frequently. So good for her. Yeah. And she puts up with me, which is another plus. And I'll say too, for anyone who's tuning in and and we're talking about kind of the hobby and how people need to be more inviting and all of that, just remember that we all started somewhere. I can remember, again, just early days for me, just wanting somebody to listen to me, just wanting to have a friend who cared about the stuff that I did. Because I had lots of friends. But I had this weird obsession that most, almost everyone that I cared about and knew didn't. And I just kind of didn't fit in until I found, started finding some people who thought the same way I did and geeked out about the same things I did. So just know that you can be that person for somebody who, who gives them a little bit of wisdom or a little bit of time or whatever it is to help really just sell it for them where like they've they're set up for a lifetime of feeling like they can make a difference as opposed to feeling like they were made out to be to be a jerk when yeah. really it, most people have good intentions you know exactly and they and if you don't know you don't know we know what we know we don't know what we don't know yeah, and sure. 
except for me, because when I first started, I read the TFH book, everything you need to know about keeping all kinds of reptiles. So obviously I had the <laughs> I compendium of all the world's hurt knowledge. All I had was TFH books, if you remember those. And they were terrible because they were all written in like the 1950s. Yeah. And you kept turtles in like little glass aquaria. And, you know, so things change. And, and, and just because it's new, old doesn't mean it's bad. And just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. You know, we need to do what's in the best interest of the animals that are in our care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we and continue to learn. I, th- there's so much stuff I learn. And, and sometimes I forget and learn it again. <laughs> and that's good for us. Yeah, absolutely. Curiosity is such an important. Uh, and watch those animals, value. man. They're just so neat. <laughs> yeah. They're so cool. I mean, how we have an Aldabra tortoise. She's about seven or eight. She's probably 16 inches, uh, you know, plaster is like 16 inches, but man, she's just, she's very shy, but she's super interesting. We find out the things that she likes, the things she doesn't like. Uh, we, we get her to, to do the finching and all that stuff. It's, it's just so cool to just, just, and wild animals, not just your animals that you have, but the animals in the wild and it, if you have a chance to go see a species you keep in the wild and what kind of environment they live in, take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and if you can help preserve some of that, help preserve some of that place where these animals originate, because that's going to go along uh, farther towards maintaining these species as viable populations than any amount of that the ESA can do is preserving yeah. these species where they live in the wild by yeah. helping to conserve land that they can live on because they need a place to live. Yeah, I, this is a terrible, terrible joke, but I have a horrible sense of humor. <laughs> but I refer to the ESA as the uh, fitness protection program. And that's just awful <laughs> because we don't do anything to really preserve wild populations. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of a short-sighted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's interesting too, the, that the juxtaposition of these species from across the world and then the species in our backyard, both being protected by the same law that really does entirely different things when you're looking at one versus the other. So it's weird to just have this overarching thing. And I think there's a lot of nuance that people don't realize and, you know, lots of stuff. Yeah. Like um, a lot and, of people. And Mark said earlier, go ahead. Go, I'll go ahead and finish your spot. Well, I, I was just going to say that Mark um, chimed in earlier and said that he thought that that ESA listing for the Egyptian tortoise is going to break down genetic diversity. I don't think that it inherently does that. I think it's. I think that depends on the people who used to try to make money off of them. Now, are they going to say, well, I can't make money off of them. Now I could really do what's right by the animal and make sure they get in the right hands. And that's where I think we have, we're all kind of in our own we are, have our own perspective based on our own needs and wants and, and fears and, and, and all of that that motivates us because I, I'm not 100% against the ESA, but I'm pretty much against the ESA, if that makes sense. But there's, you know, it is what it is. We can't change it. We tried really hard. I don't know if everyone listening did, but, you know, I, I helped get, we helped get together. I was part of a group that got together to do research and crunch numbers and present that to the committee and, and, you know, wrote things and got organizations together and did a whole bunch of work. So I can sit here right now and know that I did everything I could do that was within my power to try to stop that from happening because I, because I 
firmly believe that it wasn't, it didn't make sense, but it happened and we know that it happened now. So I, I just want to say that I think if you're doom and gloom, oh man, this just happened and now we're screwed. I, I don't think that that's the case yeah. either. I don't think that genetic diversity has been ruined in the radiated tortoise population in America because of the ESA listing. Um, it's actually that, that stud book. I don't even know if that stud book is accepting more animals. I think it's like yellow. Um, so they do green, yellow, red uh, based on how much genetic diversity there is. So that's all. So in, in many cases, when we're looking at conservation issues, we I don't know if any human solution, human driven solution to a problem is a best solution. What we normally end up with is like the least worst solution, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's not the worst solution. If we're lucky. Yeah. But it's the best of the worst solutions that we possibly have. I mean, it, it, we're just a strange species. We're just a really strange species of animal. Oh, we make no we sense are. most of the time. It's so true. Mm -hmm. We try. Here we are on a podcast trying to make sense, but you're right. Make it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. Uh, yeah. uh, wh what was the, what's the craziest call that you went on that you can share with us? Oh, let's, oh, I've been on a bunch. Uh, duck poisoning, where the person was poisoned by eating duck, and they had the family of like seven or eight that was nearly defecating themselves to death. It oh. was horrible. You can't fit that many people in a bathroom in a residential home. Oh, what a way. That was not good, but they ate a duck and probably undercooked it or maybe didn't clean it right. And when, and the, But, uh, you know, we got calls for the strangest things. Uh, we got calls for a flying golden dragons, green mambas, which I'm not even sure that green mamba ever existed. I think it may have been something else. And it was allegedly a bite associated with it, but he was asymptomatic. So you can't really, you know, good grief. So much stuff. And I can hardly remember any of it. Uh, or, I, or I can with some. <laughs> I put you on prompting. the spot. Uh, yeah. That's you know, okay. they were my normal calls for me. So they, I didn't consider mm -hmm. them weird or outstanding. You know, I did have a couple of like fairly profound bites where I, I think it our intervention did make a big difference. We had a king cobra bite where that could have very possibly resulted in a fatality without without good uh, proper intervention. Uh, that that was a big deal. Um, wow, it's, it's really hard to think about. My wife had one of the weirdest calls and she didn't remember it, so she got a subpoena for the mm -hmm. case and I had to look at the report. And it was bizarre, more bizarre than anything I ever ran on. Were you, did you go to the, was that, was that Swamp Wars when they went to um, Tom Crutchfield's house for like yes. that Oh standoff? yeah, that was very dark. And uh, yeah, that was so sad. So I, I made the mistake of asking him about that years later and I didn't realize, I, I asked him about Bruce, who I think is the person who yeah. lost their life that day, and I, and I, I, I didn't realize that because it was all like Bruce was all on his website still years later, and I didn't realize. But because of watching your show, I actually knew about it, but it didn't pop in my head. But I didn't know who, they never said who it was, and I didn't realize that that's who had passed away. That was weird. That was wild, and you know, that's people yeah. we know. Which you know, a lot of the yeah. keepers that are bitten, we do know them. Uh, most of our calls, honestly, are people in the public who are bitten in accidental bites. Uh, but yeah, that was that was strange and that was disconcerting. And uh, it takes a lot to process something like that because you know the people involved. 
and it, it's, it hits a little close to home. But when keepers are bitten, it also hits a little close to home. And I yeah. always look at every bite as a learning experience. If you survive, you can learn something from it. And one of, and you know, the thing that I saw with most of the bites that I dealt with is not people doing weird procedures, which you think would be where that would happen because you're not, you're doing something unfamiliar, but people tend to be hyper vigilant and maybe excessively careful in those circumstances. A lot of bites took place during routine maintenance uh, because mm -hmm. you're comfortable. You're driving your yeah. car with your foot while you trim your fingernails. Yeah, and listen to most podcasts. accidents happen close yeah. to home, right? So you're not worried about That's because most and... of the time you're close to home. You spend probably most of your time by that. It's like that. <laughs> Have you ever seen the airplane where they said, oh, we need to armor the outsides of the wings and the tail and the fuselage and tail? And they're like, no, those are the ones that made it home. We need to armor where the crew sits and, and closer to the yeah. engine. You know, that's a, right. that's the, that's looking at statistics, which is another thing I love in risk management. <laughs> right. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I, I think we've, this has been a really fun show. It was, it's different. I knew that, you know, a lot of times, like even our last episode, we had someone on who's a part of the turtle room. We know really closely kind of what she's working on. You're someone who we don't work really closely with, but somebody who I've been observing for gosh, like, what is it, 12 years now or something since yeah. Swamp War started. So um, big fan, super grateful you came on. And and I originally, you were originally really on my radar as somebody who I always kind of appreciated because um, Jared Siedkowski, who's a big time turtle morph breeder, uh, the, the master of turtle genetic mutations in Florida, uh, is somebody who apparently knows you. And, and he spoke to you about the turtle room when we were really a younger organization, like 2014, maybe. Yeah. And he was like bragging, like, oh, Jeff Fobb from Swamp Wars said that he saw what we were doing and that he thought it was it's cool. great. And I just, it, it, I always was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. You need, you, we need people who are not just out there to make a buck but actually thinking about the future of some of these species, which will disappear, we're, we're, we're experiencing mass extinction, uh, tree species, yeah. plant species, habitat. It's just disappearing at an alarming rate. And the only place some people will get a chance to see these is in captivity, which is just one of the shames, the amount of genetic diversity that's lost. And not, and not only that, we don't even think about it, but the human diversity that's lost, the languages that are lost, because the speakers mm -hmm. are no longer around, uh, the cultures that disappear. Uh, it's, it, those are the things that make the world incredibly interesting and probably stable is that amount of diversity. I don't want to live in a world with just goats, cows, dogs, pigs, cats, and, and sheep. And, you know, I want yeah. to live in a world where I can see some of these things in the wild. And, and I know that they're, they're vouchsafed for the future, you know, unless we do something incredibly stupid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really well said. Yeah. Emily, any closing remarks or questions or anything? Well, I just have to say you have been wonderful. It's been really great talking with you. You are um, so interesting. This was great. Thank you. I've done interesting the things. Coolest. I'm not interesting. I've yes, been, you, I've been, I, you know, I have been tangentially involved in a lot of interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I don't think it's inherent to me. I think it's like, you know, it's external stuff. That yeah, I, just, I, I just happen to luck into because I'm lucky. I've, I've, I've lived a, a lucky life. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. far. I don't know about that. <laughs> make your own luck. I, I think I think you're the best. I love every time I see you make a post on Facebook, I'm all pumped to see it because you're hilarious. And yeah, just knowing who you are too and, and it's juxtaposed with your with your post make me just make me smile pretty much every day. So I try to bring a smile to somebody's face. Yeah, well, it's working. So I don't know if people tell you that, but I'm telling you, yeah. it's working. Yeah, and so, I have no yeah, time for trolls. I have a few that like come around every now and yeah. again, but they pretty much dropped off the map, which is kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. They know they're not getting to you or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, honestly, um, for them to get to me, I would have to value their opinion, and I don't. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. That's great. If they don't get to you, then, you know, the, the big con and, is and I can take a lot of abuse. I, uh, I have uh, enough arrogance to an ego to, to be able to take a lot of abuse because I value my own opinion. And if you're going to convince me of something, bring the receipts. Show me where I'm, my thinking is flawed. That's how it works. That's how discussion works. Sure. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And that's the issue with social media, right? Is everyone's got an opinion and so, so and, little. And your opinion is fine. But I, I like I like to live in a fact-based world. But let me tell you, the world is just interesting. The world is fat. Wildlife, animals, they're fascinating. They're so different from us. But we're, we're just other animals. We're hairless apes with, a, with, <laughs> yeah. with high-speed fiber optic cable networks and <laughs> aircraft. You know, but, but we're just animals. We just got to it. Yeah. We just got to it first. Give them time. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. That's great. Well, I, I think that's a great place to end right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you everyone who tuned in. Really appreciate it. We'll be back next month with another episode of the podcast. We're closing on an episode 100. Been doing this over 10 years now. Looking forward to, uh, to reaching that milestone with everybody. So thank you all. Thank you, Jeff, so much for everything that you've done you know, throughout your career and your life as a reptile enthusiast and champion and uh, for giving me something really really, really entertaining to watch about 12, 10 or so years ago. I just want you to know that I've always appreciated you in that show. So, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And you guys have a good night. Everybody yeah. else as well. See ya. Bye.